Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Just a heads up before we begin, this episode contains references to sexual violence, abuse, and intimate partner violence. Listen with care. On the last episode of Very Scary People, the Ken and Barbie Killers, 15-year-old Kristen French was abducted in the quiet town of St. Catharines. Eyewitnesses confirmed she was taken in broad daylight from a church parking lot walking home from school. After two weeks of investigating her disappearance, her body was found in a roadside ditch 35 miles away from home. The discovery of Kristen French sounded another alarm. Her case was strikingly similar to Leslie Mahaffey's, the missing girl who was found just a year earlier in Lake Gibson. As law enforcement made more connections between the two cases, it became more and more clear that a serial killer was operating in eastern Toronto, and after Carla Hamulka was sent to the hospital, there's a break in the Scarborough Rapist case. It's January 1993, eight months since Kristen French was found dead. Carla Hamulka is shaken up. The skin around her eyes is puffy and black, and her petite frame is covered in bruises. She's just come into the emergency room at St. Catherine's General Hospital after being violently attacked during a dispute with her husband, Paul Bernardo. Uh, emergency ward, and the, and the doctor there said it was the worst case of wife abuse he'd ever seen. The abuse is shocking, because outwardly, Paul and Carla appear to be a beautiful young couple who have it all. The fairy tale wedding, the charming pink house, the loving relationship. Is it all a mirage? While Carla is being treated for her injuries at the hospital, the Ontario Provincial Police are called in for routine questioning. It's standard procedure when anybody is admitted into the hospital for injuries related to domestic violence. She doesn't hold back on the grisly details of what she's been enduring at the hands of her husband. Turns out, he isn't just physically abusive, he's controlling too. Here's Nick Prawn, a former reporter from the Toronto Star. I can read all the things she wrote, wrote out, please. He forced me to drink alcohol daily. He made me stay up late even when I had to work the next day. He didn't allow me to seek medications. He strangled me with his hands. It gets worse. Carla tells the officers that Paul is relentless and nothing can stop him. He can make a weapon out of anything. He threw knives at me. He held a knife to my throat, hit me with a piece of firewood. He hit me with his shoes. He hit me with a flashlight. He hit me with a screwdriver. But he didn't just hit her with it. According to Carla... He took the screwdriver and stabbed her with it. 
He stabbed me in the back of the head, causing her scalp to bleed. Carla tells the police every single graphic detail. He often ripped handfuls of hair out from my head. He would punch me, he would kick me, he would slap me. And she said the violent incidents escalated to emotional abuse too. Once he pushed me down the stairs, he called me names, slud, whore, and the C word. What they're hearing from Carla is undeniably gut-wrenching. It's heartbreaking. And it turned everything the community assumed about the young couple on its head. Day in and day out, she's being tormented and traumatized. Carla's life with Paul isn't the heaven-sent love she spent her girlhood wishing for. It is a living hell. Around the same time that Carla is hospitalized, Experts at the Ontario Center for Forensic Science are testing DNA left behind by the Scarborough rapist, and the trail is leading straight to Paul. They test it, and it comes up uh, on the DNA, not as a perfect match as you would get today very easily, but uh, given the technology at the time, sufficient to make him a person of interest. So the police have some more questions for Carla about her husband. So the police, as they usually do, is they do an investigation. Who is this guy and where is he living and what's going on in his life? They go to the wife to talk to her first. It's like, it's like a bullseye. You start at the, at the edges and you move your way into the center. Could Carla be the key to solving the Scarborough rapist investigation? A case they've been trying to crack for years? From ID... This is Very Scary People, the Ken and Barbie Killers. I'm your host, Donnie Wahlberg. You might remember me from our first season, The Amityville Murders. And now, in this season, we're traveling to Canada, a place known for its cold beer and warm welcomes, to trace the twisted path of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, a couple from Toronto that appeared loving and wholesome. The truth is, they were anything but... We'll explore how the boy and the girl next door became the killers known as Ken and Barbie. This is episode four, the DNA sample. On the surface, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka had everything. A loving relationship, a sports car, a home to call their own, and an exciting future. Their life was full of the kinds of things that some people might envy. Kathy Kenzora remembers how important appearances were to them. Well, it was very important to Paul and Carla to look like a really cool, young, successful couple. They were all about having, you know, the latest fashions and all the gadgets. And they were going out for fancy dinners and drinking champagne. And even their wedding was all about, you know, the pomp. I think it was very important to them to always look like they had everything. In their Ken and Barbie world, everything was perfect. Megan Sachs, co-host of Women in Crime podcast, says it was all smoke and mirrors. The two were playing make-believe. They were living dual lives, but yeah, in reality, they were not the people that anyone thought that they actually were. They're smiling, they're happy, they look like young, energetic, normal people. They could be your neighbors. Boy, were they wrong. 
while Paul and Carla appeared outwardly picture-perfect to their community, friends, and family. Kathy says behind closed doors, it was an entirely different story. Right from the early days of their relationship, whether it was controlling her to not go to college, restricting who, what friends she could hang around with, it you know, eventually escalated to physical arguments and more aggressive abuse. Paul had stripped Carla away from everything. He had been controlling and abusing her even before they were married. Mary Garofalo recalls watching a video from their wedding day where Paul openly referenced abusing Carla. Well, a lot of videos were wedding videos where you go up to a guest and you say, say, congratulate the happy couple. And he would joke around about beating his wife. And meanwhile, he was actually beating his wife. The signs were in plain sight. I remember that video was sent to me. The uncle was joking around about, don't beat your wife. And she's looking in the camera because she knows very well that she's now being beaten every evening and being humiliated verbally by her husband every night. Carla's body language and expression in the video revealed something both so sad and so sinister. It was just so telling because she always had that fake smile on her face. It did not look genuine. It was, I'm keeping up the facade so that nobody can see how disgusting our lives are. But Nick Prawn, who reported on the Scarborough rapist case for the Toronto Star, knew Paul and Carla's relationship didn't fool everyone. According to Nick, some wedding guests started to sense something wasn't right with Carla the day they were pronounced husband and wife. You could tell that she had issues, but her friends at the time just didn't quite see it. They knew something was wrong, but they just couldn't put their finger on you know, what exactly it was. Some guests thought she had cold feet. Turns out, it wasn't just wedding day jitters. Carla was scared, seemingly trapped in a terrible situation, suffering in a never-ending cycle of abuse. She was not happy at all. There was no smiling. And one of her friends said it was like I was, I was going to a funeral and not a wedding. Little did they know, what they were picking up on was that their friend was about to walk down the aisle and make a lifetime commitment to a man who actively abused her. But despite the ongoing violence in her private life, Carla went ahead with the wedding she so desperately desired. It's hard to imagine the abusive dynamic between Paul and Carla growing worse. But after the wedding, that's exactly what happened. The day Carla was admitted to the hospital, what she revealed to the police was brutal and nothing short of monstrous. Here she is telling the police about the abuse she endured in her own words. I didn't turn the water tap off completely, he hit me. If I didn't say the right thing, he hit me. He held knives to my throat, he told me I better watch my back. He said, always watch your back with me. She wasn't safe anywhere Paul was. Not even when they'd sit down to eat together, drive around town, or at night when they went to bed. Every private moment between the two of them was an opportunity for Paul's violence towards her. Kathy says it wasn't long before Paul brought violence into their intimate life, too. Also, she says, had started becoming more violent with her during sex and um, was using ligatures, and, and she was starting to get afraid that he might kill her. Carla's feelings were right. 
because eventually he did threaten her. He threatened that if she ever told on him or left him, she would not only kill her, but he, he, he would kill her family as well. And that's why she told the police afterwards. That's why she stayed with him. The intimate partner violence didn't stop. And soon, Carla started missing her work shifts at Martindale Animal Clinic. She kept the abuse hidden as long as she could. But then her friends and colleagues started noticing signs of foul play on her body and face. Kathy says Carla showed up to work four days after the beating that ultimately led her to seek medical attention. When she showed up to work, they noticed she was badly bruised, with black eyes and scrapes too. I don't advise you look it up, but there's a picture of Carla on the internet taken in the aftermath of the attack. You can see the hospital gown tied behind her neck. Her blonde hair with dark roots is tousled. And under her closed eyes, you can clearly see just how deeply bruised they were. And it was obvious that something bad had happened. She told her co-workers that she was in a car accident. The car accident claim was suspicious. They didn't believe her lie, and the signs could no longer be ignored. Her co-workers felt they had no choice but to take action. They wanted to protect her from getting hurt again. It was time to get her some support. Someone anonymously called her mom to say, like, something's going on with your daughter. You need to get down here. Carla's mom, Dorothy, took the co-worker's cry for help seriously. Worried about her daughter, she quickly went to her aid. Carla's mom couldn't believe how badly hurt Carla was and that the man she believed was such a caring husband, the man that she welcomed into her family and home, the man that she trusted her daughter with, could do this. Days before Carla's mom was called for help, Paul and Carla got into an argument that escalated quickly. They'd had a, she says, a fight over. He came home from doing something, and she didn't ask him how he was. And then Paul grabbed a flashlight. He beat her very badly with a heavy flashlight and really bruised her. She was clearly a victim who was battered. The bruising from inside her brain caused like these raccoon bruises on her face that were just like massive black eyes. At this point, her parents were kind of cued into what was going on. And Kathy says once they knew the horrifying reality Carla was living... And after seeing her so terribly battered, they pleaded with her to leave Paul. So the mom came to see her and was shocked when she saw her face and convinced her, you need to leave Paul, you need to get out of there. They took Carla over to her and Paul's home to grab her personal essentials, the things they didn't share as a couple, her clothes, her toiletries, and her valuables, so that she wouldn't have to return. She went into hiding, essentially, at her aunt and uncle's place. Little is known about Carla's extended family. It seems fair to assume that they chose to protect details of their identities from the public in hopes of maintaining normal lives. A life without association to Paul Bernardo. Still, what we do know is that they were there for Carla in her dire time of need. She escaped the threat of his continued violence in Brampton about 70 miles north of Carla and Paul's place in Port Dalhousie. That last physical altercation with Paul was the final straw. Carla Homolka finally left Paul Bernardo. Once Carla left their pink Port Dalhousie house, 
Paul started to face the consequences of his actions. Here's Kathy explaining how it all went down. He was living by himself in the house. Paul was spiraling. He couldn't stand the thought of losing Carla for good. And, you know, by all accounts, he was just walking around aimlessly, like crying and making tapes, calling for Carla to come back to him and just really sounding like he was losing it. So we went out looking for those tapes and we found them. I've been here for five days alone. It's been a long time, but it's, it's hard when you're alone. It's pretty hard, pal. I walk to the house sometimes. I go, car? Car? Carla? Car? Hey, car? But I don't get any answer. <laughs> Amy says this was just the beginning. And this is when everything started to fall apart for Paul. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Are you looking for ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative? Gretchen Rubin is the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project, and every week she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Gretchen's co-host and happiness guinea pig is her sister Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood showrunner. Join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal fresh insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time, energy, or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for your year, or design your summer. They also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions like are you an overbuyer or an underbuyer, a morning person or a night person, abundance lover or simplicity lover. And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. Listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Back at the hospital, 
Carla finished up her formal statement with the police about the domestic dispute. It was clear from her interview and injuries that she was a victim of intimate partner violence. There was just no denying it. She agreed to press charges against Paul. Paul was arrested after the brutal flashlight beating, but he wasn't held in custody for long. But by the time he was released, Carla was in a safe place with support from her family. Paul may have dodged a longer punishment for physically assaulting Carla, but his luck would soon run out. His DNA had been tested on February 1st, 1993. And when the results came back, the police found a connection to the Scarborough Rapist investigation. Remember, in November 1990, after police released the Scarborough Rapist composite sketch, the Metro Toronto Police brought Paul in for questioning. After being interrogated, Paul agreed to give a sample of both his hair and his blood. Because of a backlog, his DNA had just been sitting and they finally got around to testing it. After digging into the official Metro Toronto Police Investigation Review, we found that there was a one-probe DNA match between the sample of Paul's blood and saliva and a semen sample taken from rape kits of the Scarborough rapist victims. It was enough to identify Paul as the probable suspect. But why did three years go by without further investigation into Paul? There were multiple tips pointing to him after the composite sketch was released. He was questioned and they had his DNA. Something wasn't adding up. It's wild to think that DNA would sit untested for years. But back then, DNA testing was still a pretty new science. You know, we're not talking about today where we can move things quicker. You know, we're talking back in the 90s, there was one DNA technician and lots of DNA to be tested. And Paul's DNA was among 79 additional suspect samples. There just weren't enough resources. And because the rapes had stopped in 1990, testing DNA samples was no longer a high priority. But given the state of technology of the time, didn't they know that it could be years down the road? They did have the DNA, but couldn't get the job done. Victims could have gotten justice sooner. It's baffling. Still, the timing of Paul's DNA match and Carla's experience with domestic violence at the hands of Paul couldn't be more of a coincidence. And for law enforcement, it was a long overdue discovery. That's when they knew it was time to speak to Carla again. Paul Hunter, who reported on the investigation, recalls how it all went down. When they finally get around to testing, they say, hey, we've got a match. Where is this guy? Oh, he's in St. Catharines. Oh, oh, and we've got a report that his wife had just been beaten up by him. Oh, so he's violent. They're starting to, wait a second, right? Oh, you don't... They go and talk to Carla. And on February 9th, 1993, a month after Carla was admitted to the hospital, the police showed up at her aunt and uncle's home with more questions. They sit her down and they say, hi, we understand you've been, you know, assaulted by your husband. We just want to ask you a few questions. Has he been violent for a long time? Is he abusive with you? Greg McCrary worked on the case as an FBI agent. He says Carla was cooperative. 
she held it together during that interview with the cops. And the police did an excellent job in interviewing her. And they used, in my opinion, a very skillful uh, interview approach with her. It was non-adversarial. It was non-accusatorial. But then the interview took a turn. Greg says it was a turn Carla was not expecting. I'm assuming she thought she was going to be interviewed just about the domestic assault. But then she found, oh, well, there were Metro Toronto police officers asking her about, did she know anything about the Scarborough rapes? Suddenly, Carla knew exactly what the officers were looking for. She started to panic. And during the interview, she dropped a bomb on them that they didn't see coming. The day Paul and Carla got married, Paul confessed something to her. At the wedding was the first time that Paul informed Carla that he was, in fact, the Scarborough rapist. Suddenly, the mysterious sense that something was rumbling under the surface of Paul and Carla's perfect relationship on their wedding day made sense. The guests who noticed a sadness in Carla weren't off base. Carla says that was the worst night of her life. And she carried the heavy burden of Paul's confession as a dark secret for nearly two years. With this revelatory information, law enforcement was able to fill in the blanks in the Scarborough investigation. Here's Greg. It all became crystal clear as to what we were dealing with. The rapes had stopped when Bernardo had moved from Scarborough. Things were adding up. Paul moved out of Scarborough and into the Homolka home in St. Catharines in 1990, which matched up with the timeline of when the Scarborough rapist seemed to have vanished. His last attack was May 26, 1990. Then, in February 1991, after Paul and Carla moved out of the Homolka's house and into their pink home in Port Dalhousie, there was an isolated daytime attack of a 14-year-old girl at a nearby bus stop. Within nine weeks of him moving in, there was a rape in close proximity to that, to his residence there at Bayview that had all the hallmarks of the rapes that had occurred in Scarborough. The sequence of events lined up precisely with Paul's moves. It made perfect sense that this was what had occurred, and the escalation was there. With Carla's case-breaking accusation and the timely DNA match, Metro Toronto Police finally had enough evidence to make their move. On February 17, 1993, an arrest was made in a case they had been trying to solve for nearly six years. Police have 28-year-old Paul Bernardo in custody, accused of being the notorious Scarborough rapist. They arrested him late yesterday at this house in St. Catharines that he rented with his wife. That evening, Slumped over in white pants and an army green jacket, Paul was once again making his way into the police station, but this time in handcuffs. He kept the hood of his jacket over his face and his hands were restrained behind his back. He didn't look like a brazen criminal. He looked like a coward. A group of officers surrounded him. One had his hand at the back of Paul's neck as he guided him through the crowd of reporters. It was a scene. The press was everywhere. Everyone wanted to get a look at the guy who kept Scarborough on alert for so long and hurt so many women. Paul Hunter 
reported on the arraignment from a tiny room full of reporters. I saw Paul Bernardo for the first time after he was arrested. He looked like a guy. <laughs> he looked like somebody who lived in Scarborough. <laughs> Again, he didn't look like a monster. He looked caught and defeated, but he just looked like a guy. To see him finally, I thought, so that's the Scarborough rapist, right? I thought, that's what he looks like. And that was it. It, it, there was nothing special about the guy in the end. His non-threatening, normal-looking facade could have been why he was able to evade police as long as he did. We expect our monsters to look like monsters, and they don't always. And in hindsight, his ability to hide in plain sight was one of the most terrifying things about him. When you look at him in person, he's nothing. He's just... He's just a guy who did terrible, evil, dark stuff. And that unto itself was a lesson. It doesn't take a giant monster. It just takes a guy to do these things. And he did them. And I think that's what made it even scarier. Because he could do these things. On the next Very Scary People, the Ken and Barbie Killers... Toronto Metro Police have finally got their guy. And maybe even more. There's evidence to prove Paul is connected to the cases of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. The crimes are all on film. And what they'll find recorded will give them everything they need to arrest and charge Paul for kidnapping and murder. The police are sent on an urgent mission to stop at nothing to retrieve the tapes. The most promising evidence yet. Everyone knew, of course, that you were listening to the last minutes in the lives of, of these young women. Very Scary People, The Ken and Barbie Killers, is hosted by me, Donnie Wahlberg. It's a production of ID in collaboration with Neon Hum Media and is based on an original series created by CNN executive producer Nancy Duffy. At CNN, our senior producer is Sabina Ryman. Our producer is Allison O'Brien, and our associate producer is Michael Reyes. From ID, our executive producer is Jessica Lowther. From Neon Hum Media, our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Cooper Mall is our producer, and our associate producer is Zoe Culkin. Our editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Our fact checker is Catherine Newham. Josh Hahn is our mix engineer. Theme and original music composed by Asha Ivanovich. Nickelodeon was kid everything. But that marked one of the darkest chapters. Three predators worked at Nickelodeon. It made me wonder who was being hurt. Quiet on set. An ID true crime event. Sunday, March 17th at 9 on ID and stream on Max.